I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Last week we began an introduction to the, the book of Timothy, considering the nature of church, what it is, and looking at the purpose of the letter as given to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And so that passage simply says that we uh, was given that we will know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so with that thought, we're going to go to chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, understanding uh, the purpose of the book and how does this piece, verses 1 through 11, fit into that purpose. One of the things... I tend to do when it comes to ministry or churches or books, um, when I find out something that's intriguing or something that may invite me to be a part of that ministry or church, or uh, I, I try to find out what does this ministry believe? What does this church believe or uh, this singer believe? And, and, you know, we live in a day where all we have to do now is just go online, look it up, and usually you can find out most of what you want to know uh, online. You can certainly do that with our church. If you want to know what we believe, you can go to the website and it'll state this is our core doctrine of what we believe. And it's important to read things like that, uh, especially if you're going to take part and participate with them. Uh, in reading this passage, though, 1 Timothy chapter 1, it seems like, as I read this passage, and, and my point is that you'll understand this as we go, is that God is not looking at some online statement. What does Green Pines believe? Have you ever thought, what, what does God do if he's Googling Green Pines, Baptist? <laughs> no need for such things. He's not going to our statement of belief. When he wants to know, what do you believe? He doesn't look for your journal. He doesn't read your diary. He doesn't even read the flyleaf of your Bible and important statements you might put there. He doesn't do that. What does God do when he wants to know what does the church believe? What does he do when he wants to know what you believe? It's very simple. He looks at what you do. Of course, he's got the added advantage of knowing a heart. But our heart is revealed, not by just personal thoughts, but revealed by what we do. So, the question being, if God was to look at the belief statement of our church, he would not look online, but he'd look at our actions. What do we do as a church. And that makes us a little bit more uncomfortable, doesn't it? Because it's really easy to write down a statement of beliefs and say, bam, there you've got it. Or we write it down in our Bible and we'll say, I am not ashamed of the gospel and we'll have all these statements, these things I believe, or I'm, I'm resolved to do these things. And it's so much easier just to do that. But God is looking at something more revealing. It's our actions. And so, 
what he's looking for is not just orthodox belief. Orthodox meaning accepted, right, truth according to the Word of God. But he's looking at orthodox behavior or has been titled orthopraxy. How we practice. Do we practice what is good and what is right? And so I just want to challenge you in the way that God has challenged me with this passage. This is a passage that has spoken to my heart uh, multiple times throughout this past year to give me instruction and challenge. And I pray that it will do the same to you. And so in honor of this being God's word, I'm going to ask that we stand as we read this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 through 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things by which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexual and moral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You may be seated. Paul starts off this letter, and you remember this is a letter to Timothy, uh, in typical fashion, uh, he was known as Saul. Evidently, Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul, more of his Greek or Gentile name. He came to be known as Paul as he spent more time with the Gentiles. Um, and so, in typical fashion, he just simply says, who I am. And it kind of makes sense, actually, when you think about it, when you write a letter. Uh, we have the unfortunate tradition of putting our uh, name at the end. <laughs> so, for some reason, we have to look at the end of the letter to know who this letter is from. This makes sense. Start off, Jared, write to you, and then Green Pines Baptist. You know, this, this, it just makes sense. And so he's following that same thing. But then uh, we have to understand that he is writing a letter to Timothy and that this letter is to be read among the church body. And so though it is a personal message directly to Timothy, it also is a message to all the in church via Timothy. And so when he writes... He does so understanding and explaining the authority from which he writes. Paul, I'm an apostle. In other words, I'm the one set apart uh, of Christ Jesus. I've been given a task, and this, and, and using this title is to say that I am one of a few that God has given through Jesus 
uh, the teachings to the church that we are to establish the foundation of Jesus and what we understand of Jesus. And so this in- includes uh, John, uh, includes uh, uh, Peter, and many of the others that, that were with him. And so this is the command of God. But notice the descriptions he gives. The command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Does that strike you as funny? Most of the times we say Jesus is our Savior. But he understands that God is our Savior because the saving work done through Jesus, or done by Jesus, is done from the Father. And sometimes we think that God is the great judge and he is the mean guy and Jesus is the nice guy and the nice guy kind of won out against the mean guy and God the Father. That is totally wrong. You understand salvation is of God, God the Father. It is from His heart, done by Jesus Christ, and applied through the Holy Spirit in our life. And so, to say that God is our Savior is totally correct and right. And so, He's bringing out the saving work of God, and then that Jesus is our hope, because it is through Jesus that we have, or by Jesus that we have, salvation, and which all things are coming to a conclusion in Jesus Christ. And so he just brings out this theology that seems to be actually a couple of themes throughout this book of 1 Timothy. And then he simply says, verse 2, to Timothy, uh, my true child in the faith. And when he writes that, he's putting a stamp on Timothy. All right, you remember Ephesus is a major city, one of the top four cities of the Roman Empire of this day. It was a major economic hub with a natural harbor in that area, with roads going through. It was a, a cultural center um, where the, the worship of Artemis, uh, one of the major temples, major edifice uh, there in that city of Ephesus. And uh, here he's got to Timothy, this, this, this church that Paul established found 12 men that were apostles of John, John the Baptist, okay? Or disciples of John the Baptist, rather. And so he taught them about Jesus Christ. They were baptized in the name of Jesus. From this time, they grow. And Paul spends three years in this one place, more than any other place, in building this church up. Many miracles were done in this place. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that the mighty works of God through Paul was such that people were just touching the handkerchiefs of Paul, and God was bringing healing. Isn't it amazing? That sounds like some TV preacher today. Uh, just touched the screen, you know? Uh, and, and, but this is things that God was doing through Paul. And so there's mighty things being done in this place. And so evidently, Paul leaves. He does uh, give some messages to the group of elders there. But he sends Timothy there. And... This is a difficult place for Timothy to be at. We'll see why. Later on, we know John, the Apostle John, ends up being one of the elders, uh, leading elders in this city of Ephesus. Can you imagine John the Baptist, Paul, Timothy, and John, the Apostle? Incredible stuff uh, of God bringing major uh, people of faith in this one city. And so here they are. And Timothy is there now. This is his, his task with the elders. And so he says to Timothy, My true child of faith gives a typical greeting, grace. But then he adds mercy and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so typically, grace was the word also for greetings to you. But he, he uh, brings more of a spiritual meaning to it. Grace being uh, that comprehensive term of goodwill from God to us. Uh, mercy. Mercy is always pertaining to people in need. Uh, and so... 
mercy is going to these. And then peace, that, that idea of, of shalom, of inner wholeness, of, of well-being in your own spirit. This is given by God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so now we're going to come to verse 3, and he gets to the meat. And this is kind of the greetings, but then he gets to the meat of what he wants to talk about in verse 3. And here's the first thing I want you to understand from this passage. Doctrine is right only when the gospel of Christ is central. Doctrine is right only when the gospel of Christ is central. And so verse 3, he elaborates on that idea. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. (laughs) This um, exhortation has a hint of struggle with Timothy. Timothy is feeling, maybe I need to go. But Paul has previously, and he reminds once again what he previously said, remain there. Stay there. There's a job for you to do. Yes, it's difficult, but stay and continue for this one purpose. And then you can imagine being Timothy. He's sitting there, man, this is getting hard. People are not listening, right? They're not, uh, they're, uh, there seems to be some problems here. And then so Paul's encouragement is, I want you to stay so that you can charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine. Stay there so you can make sure the doctrine stays correct. So I'm sure that cheered up Timothy a good bit. Uh, Okay, (laughs) I get to stay, and I get to stay so that I'll do this. Okay. Uh, But nonetheless, this is the word from Paul. And so he says, Remain that you may charge or command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, or verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. So evidently, there were those people, and and Paul spends more of this letter elaborating upon this, who were not staying focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, but were looking at Jewish myths and, and bringing out these stories and adding to the gospel. And then they were spiritualizing texts. In other words, they were taking genealogies and taking stories and think, well, you know what, this doesn't really mean what it says on face. It actually has a deeper spiritual meaning. And they were constantly going under the deeper spiritual meanings instead of what the text said on face value. And they were saying, you know, if you're really spiritual, they're going to find the deep meaning behind these stories. And, and they, were, they were bringing this type of thought. And Paul is saying, you know what, it just goes back to the gospel. Stay true to the stewardship of God that is by faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you need to understand that when we start adding to the gospel, we dilute the gospel. When we do put out that core doctrine of faith, what we're saying is that this is what unifies our church. We all believe these things. One of the things I tell people as they come into our church and the new members class, like I'll be teaching this Saturday, is, is that if you don't believe the core doctrine of these belief statements, then please don't join our church. Because this isn't up for debate. This is something the church has together agreed upon that this is what makes us who we are. And if you don't agree here, then you disagree with the fundamental aspect of who we are as a body together. And, and so when you add and say, not only is the gospel of Jesus Christ critical, so are, bam, 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 we start listening out other uh, true statements, then we're actually diluting the gospel. Now, 
We live in the day where everyone seems to respond to, if you share your testimony with somebody, you share the gospel with someone, this is the typical response. If they're generous, nice, gracious to you. That's great. I'm glad that's true for you. You've heard that? That's true for you. And what's implied is there's customized truth. There's some things that are true for one person, and some things are true for another person. And that's great when we're talking about preferences and strengths and weaknesses. But when it comes to things that are custom or that are true throughout all of the world, there are some things that are not just true for you. I assure you, gravity is not just true for you. Yes, it is true for you. But it's true for every person that walks this earth. But that is our tendency, is that we feel like we, we don't want some propositional truth that governs us, that which we have to conform to in some way. And we don't want to figure out whether this propositional truth is right or wrong. We don't want to even have to go there. And so let's just say, oh, that's great for you. And let me just kind of figure it out as I go so I don't have to evaluate things that tend to be a propositional truth, whether it's right or wrong. There's a, a story uh, in the paper um, a little over a month ago, it happened in New York in the Bronx Zoo. Um, it's from September 25th. Um, a New York man was mauled by a tiger he wanted to be one with. And I thought, well, that's probably a pretty good method to get one with a tiger. Let them eat you. Um, but that was his statement that he wanted to be one with. So this David, who's 25, jumped 17 feet off an electric monorail ride over an electric fence into the tiger den, suffering bite wounds on his arms, legs, shoulders, and back, as well as a broken ankle and arm after the tiger mauled him. He said that his leap was definitely not a suicide attempt, but a desire to be one with the tiger according to the Deputy Commissioner for Public Information. When a NYPD sergeant asked yesterday why he jumped into the Tiger Preserve, he replied, everyone in life makes choices. I can't fault him on that. That's true. Everyone in life does make choices. It doesn't quite explain everything, though. He says, no surprise he landed on all fours, considering his passion for cats. Um... Perhaps there is one consolation that he told police that he did get to pet the tiger (laughs) after the animal had dragged him (laughs) by his ankle. Um, You know, I think this just kind of shares a little bit of the, the difficulty of when we have this idea that things can be true for you. Yeah, okay, that's true for you, but where does it get you? It gets you fundamentally opposed to certain laws of nature that are not just true for one person. Man plus tiger does not equal good. Universally true. And we read this and we think it's so absurd. But we do this all the time. This 
idea that truth is customized. And Okay, that's great. Jesus died for our sins. That's, that's one way. Let's just add to this another way. And I ask, by what authority do you, do you count on this truth? By what authority do you say that this is going to have a good result? Is that of your own thinking? Is that on your own reason? And how long have you lived life? to have such complete, absolute truth in your mind that you're banking your attorney uh, on that. All 35, 38, 40, 50, 60, even a 90-year-old person. Is that enough experience to say that you're going to make these statements of truth of what's true for your life and end of life? What Paul is bringing out, verse 4, Let's not add to these things which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You know what? The stewardship from God has the idea that I've received something from God. God has given to us. This is what we call the Bible, the Word of God, that idea, that phrase, the Word of God, the revelation of God. He is entrusted to us. We are stewards. And the pinnacle of the revelation of the Old and New Testament is that there would one day be a Messiah, someone who would redeem mankind of their sin and is the picture of Jesus Christ. And the knowledge of Jesus Christ has been entrusted to the believer. We are to be good stewards. And so what does that mean? It is to say as a church, this pinnacle of revelation, this Jesus Christ, this Messiah, this Redeemer, this Savior, is to be the central point of what we believe and what we do and how we act. That's church, the pillar of the truth. Remember? 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, this is given to us that we'll know how to behave in the household of God, which is the pillar and buttress of truth. We have been given as stewards the gospel of Jesus Christ, who He is through the Word of God. And so, the only proper place to put it is front central. Front central. It's the most valuable piece. I'm sure if you were decorating your house when you first got married, I remember the, the conflict of, of taste. Good many of you knew that know that I have a thing for swords and stuff like that. I just, I don't know, I like it. And so I had one sword and we had uh, one apartment. And in that apartment we had one little living area. And, and in that one living area we had one fireplace and one mantle, which means that this becomes front central. And in my mind... A sword belonged there. I was shocked that that was not in Julie's mind. And thus, marriage life begins. In a church, understand, there is only one central theme that any church can have. And it is not ours to say, let's put up our own little commercial convictions and make this front central. When it has been given to us by God, he says, the gospel of Jesus Christ is front central. Right doctrine is right only when the gospel of Christ is central. So we have to be constantly on guard to say what unifies this church is not Music taste is not how we dress. It's not ethnicity. This is why it's so dangerous to start adding to what unifies a church. 
And so many of the churches in America are not just unified by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the gospel of Jesus Christ and... And they load on all these methodologies and preferences and ethnicities and says this is the gospel of Christ. This is the church. It is a dangerous position that a church has been found in and we get relegated just cafeteria type mentality to say, well, you go to the church that you prefer the most. How is it the church is identified by a preference or music style when the gospel says that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that identifies us? It is to be unified. We don't add to the gospel and what unifies a church. And I'm going to tell you, Green Pines, just as I, I examine our own church, I examine churches around, it is such an easy thing. You don't even have to think about it to add on to what unifies a church. And when we start looking at only the gospel of Christ is the unifying aspect of a church, we start getting in very uncomfortable positions because now we're starting to realize that our own personal preferences that we love are not unifying our church. Paul is saying, keep it central. Timothy, charge them. Don't let them teach different doctrine. Don't let them devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. It's only going to promote speculations. It's not going to promote the stewardship from God that is by faith. We, we looked at this when we looked at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. It, it makes it very clear that we are growing into the head of Jesus Christ, from whom Jesus Christ, the whole body, is joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love when we are united in Christ. Now, we keep on reading verse 5. I want to bring to you the second important truth about doctrine. Doctrine is right only when love is the behavior. Doctrine is right only when love is the behavior. He says, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of the charge that we're giving to those who are introducing other doctrines and, and myths and genealogies is, is that we want to charge people to love. The aim of the revelation of God's word is love. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. James talks about this way, that to love your neighbor is the pinnacle because you cannot love your neighbor until you know the love of God and you love him back. So what's the point of knowing the stories? Right now I'm teaching Evan, teaching him the stories of the Bible. And it's fun. But the point... It's not so that Evan will be knowledgeable of the stories of the Bible. The point is not so that he'll know all the answers in the Sunday school class. The point isn't just so he knows the character names. The point isn't even just so he knows the chronology of the Bible. The point isn't even just to have verses memorized. It's something we do at, at our breakfast table. We, we go through the, the scripture memory verses and, and we, we work together on that. But the point isn't just to, to have that knowledge. The point and the end goal, the point of my time here, the point of any time we open up the Bible, the end result, the point of Jesus 
ultimately is that we love God and love others. Have you had in your mind that person? I remember growing up and I grew up in church. And there were certain individuals I knew they believed the right things. And they were dogmatic. And believing the right things of, of the Word of God. And I could count on them being defenders of the Bible. But I knew them to be angry people. Is there a contradiction there? I mean, you just cross them in the slightest ways, and you can expect an onslaught, of a barrage of verbal anger. The Bible teaches us that we are to have personal convictions and that those do happen, that there's some convictions, there's some things that I'm not going to do and I'm not going to go in the practice of doing and, 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 and some others may have liberty to do those things and it doesn't bother them, uh, but there's personal convictions. But in my pursuit of personal convictions, sometimes if we're not careful, we will trample over somebody and not love them, but we have held on to our personal convictions. And in holding on to our personal convictions, could it be that we've held on to the tree and we missed the forest? And not loving. The aim of our charge is love. How does that happen? This is where it is not enough to have orthodox. We must have orthopractice. When God looks at a church and finds out, what do we believe? He doesn't look online to see our statement of faith. He looks at how we're treating people. And that reveals what we believe. How does this happen? Notice how Paul explains this in verse 5. There, it seems to be a kind of a cascading effect. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. Issues from a, poor, a pure heart. In other words, it, it springs forth out of a pure heart and it springs forth out of a good conscience and it springs forth out of a sincere faith. And so Paul is highlighting that these three components are critical. They are the springs from which love comes forth. The issues from a pure heart. What does that mean? Pure heart. We've talked about this before when we looked at James. It's, it's the wholeness of an inner person. That it, it's, it's not divided, but there, there's unity in your inner person. How you think and what your motives are spring forth from one common desire. Most of us spend our life with conflicted desires. Jesus did not have conflicted desires. He had one chief prevailing desire to do the will of His Father. But our problem is that, yeah, that sounds good, but sometimes we want to do the will of our own. We have selfishness that's in our heart. So when He talks about issuing from a pure heart, it is to describe a heart that is cleansed from sin and free of selfish motives, godly, honorable. You see... The problem that we have as a church is sometimes we'll say, okay, as long as we just believe in the Bible, we're good, right? We believe the Bible is the Word of God, it is without error, it is infallible, we make those statements, we teach it, we're good, right? 
I would say that is probably equivalent to the person who says, I prayed to receive Christ as Jesus as my Savior, Lord. I, I was baptized. I got my name on the church roll. But they live as if it didn't matter. I think that is equivalent to the church that says, it's just enough to say we believe all the right things, but they never act out love. When the salvation comes into our life, when the gospel of Jesus comes into our life, it is to have an effect. And one of the first effects is to identify selfishness for what it is. We talked about this in James 4, verse 7 through 10, where it talks about divided heart. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Who does the purifying work? There's a part where it's involving us where we recognize that there's mixed desires, mixed goals in our life, and we submit that to Him. Submit uh, and purify our hearts. Double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. What is the motivation to surrendering selfish hearts? What, what, what's the drive in this? 1 John 3, verse 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know this, that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself as He is pure. What is the motivation for our pure hearts? It is that we have seen who God is and that He loves us. Behold what manner of love He's given to us. It drives us to purify our hearts to say, God, I have before me selfish desires and it's in me and I must die to these. A good conscience. A good conscience. This love the aim of our charge, the, the point of us being together as a church is to love. It comes from a pure heart, but a good conscience. We see that, and we often think, well, that involves internal, just internal listening. And that fits a culture that has individualism as a tyrannical force in our country. But it's a little bit more to it than that. In, in that day and time, in the first century, when this book was written, and the letter was written, is it, the person's conduct with a, church, a chosen group is living according to standards which the group deemed proper and acceptable. Is to live without shame among one's peers or companions. If you go to the Arabic culture, you still see that. It's the, the drive to be without shame among your own peers. In other words, it's not just my own mind, but it's other people's perspective that also governs me. I find that this is hard for us Americans to swallow. You mean I've got to change my conduct according to what other people think? Paul said, in here and do I exercise myself to always have a conscience void of offense toward God and man. Acts 24, 16. To say that love is going to be done by understanding the expectations of people around us and trying to conform to that. Now, I'm not saying just follow what everybody believes. It is under the fundamental idea of loving God and loving others that allows us to meet people where they are and help them. 
and then a sincere faith. Our conduct is driven by the revealed Word of God. That's what makes a community a community of faith, is that we're driven by this faith. It is the believing. It is the belief that God does love me. That's why it's so important to hear, learn that song, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. To believe that. To comprehend that, to grasp that, and let it have a changing effect in my life. To say, I believe, and to operate by faith in this. I, I think about this story given to us in John chapter 12, verse 20 through 26. It's before the cross. Jesus is in Jerusalem. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I mean, Jesus had been focusing on the Jews. He had done some foraying out into the Gentile heirs. But now the Gentiles are seeking him a little bit before the cross. And they say, we just want to see him. So Philip went and told Andrew. And Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered this. This is always puzzled me. Jesus didn't give him a yes or no. Okay, I'll see you. No, I won't. He, He says this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And it seems like Jesus is giving this cryptic answer to some Greeks that want to see Jesus. So, well, you know what? There's a seed, and if the seed doesn't go in the ground, then it, it'll be alone. But if it goes and it dies, then there'll be much fruit. How, how did Philip respond to that? I mean, what, what does he tell the Greeks? <laughs> um, I don't know. But that, that's his response. Here's what's going on. Jesus is saying... The work of love is going to drive me. And the work of love is not a self-preserving work. My heart is to do the will of God, the will of my Father. And the will of Father has me go to the ground and get buried. Then there will be much fruit. The Greeks want to come, but before the Greeks can ever come, I've got to die and provide salvation for the nations. We talk about this and we think, okay, take up your cross and follow Him. And we have this vision of, of just serving the Lord and maybe standing before some ruler and, and them saying, go to prison. And we have this vision of what it means to die for Christ. The idea of dying for Christ is much more mundane than that. It is to love people. To not put your needs first. To put the need of someone else to intentionally, willingly sacrifice for the need of that person. Regardless of how they respond and what worth you think they might have. Just to do that, that is to by faith to say God sees this, He honors this, and He will respond to this. By faith, when we are called to follow Jesus, we don't just treat God as someone who comes in to supplement our life to make it better. It is to say, I need God and I'm going to love Him and He loves me and this love drives me to lay down my life on an everyday basis. 
I have some bulbs in my front porch. And this, the reason I bought these bulbs is because they have a pretty picture. <laughs> That's such a pretty picture. I hope to have pretty things like that in my yard someday. So I got a, a bunch of bulbs. My, uh, my daughter has planted some of those bulbs. And so I have hope. I have hope. My mom told me it was too early to plant some of those bulbs. So they're waiting now for it to be cold. I think we're officially there. So I've got another nice mound of these bulbs on my front porch. Now, to take a bulb and put it in the ground is kind of dirty. It doesn't make sense. Most things you put in the ground come out. You know, they, they get dirty and rot. But I've got two. One that's in my front porch with a beautiful picture around it. And I've got others. I don't even know. They're in the dirt somewhere. And if the bulb is saying, I don't want to get dirty, I don't want to get in the ground, I don't want that, you know, let me just stay right here in the shelter. I've got this pretty picture right here next to me. This is, I mean, I'm on the front porch for crying out loud. I'm in front place. But as long as those bulbs are in the front place, they're not going to do what they've been called to do. You are seeds. Every single one of you are seeds. And as a seed, are you so interesting in preserving your rights as a seed? Say, keep me up in display. Don't let me get dirty. And let other people meet my needs. Do you understand that you are a seed that is meant to be put into the ground of selflessness to say, with this need of someone else above my own, let me die. Every day to my heart's desires because now my heart's desires are submitted to the one desire of God the Father. What on earth would cause you to do that? Because you have been so overwhelmed by the love of the Father for you. Notice, keep on reading, verse 6, 7, 8, 9, you see the opposite effect. He says, Doctrine is right when only love is the behavior. That being said, it doesn't matter what our statement of faith is if we're not loving. From God's perspective, we're messing up. Verse 6, certain persons, by swerving from these, they're not loving, by swerving from the gospel of Jesus Christ, have wandered away into vain discussion or meaningless conversations, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. What's the motivation according to verse 7? What's the motivation? I want to be a teacher. I want to be a person of influence. I want power. Just give me a platform. Sad, so many churches often struggle over power. Who has the greatest influence in a church? Is my vision for the church, is that the dominant vision that's going to determine things? How is that pure of heart when we're striving over power? 
And so these teachers are trying to be teachers of the law to have good influence, good reputation, and they're just bringing up vain discussion, things they don't even know what they're talking about, but they bring it up because it brings speculation, it brings interest. And so now people see me as knowledgeable and influential. You go online and blogs and Facebook and Twitter, and this is overflowing online. I'm going to write a blog so people will follow me and I have some influence and maybe I'll feel good about myself. I'm going to write about something. I don't even know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to write about it and people will listen and read it. All right, you've seen this controversy. Let me just put it up online so everyone else can see this controversy. We don't even know the characters involved and the people involved and their motivations. We don't know that, but we're going to put it out there. So that people will respect me. Reputations. In this case, we're not being built on love, but on controversy. What is your reputation being built on? Verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. And then he goes on listing out the lawless and disobedience. And basically what he's doing, he's, he's taking the bulk of the Ten Commandments and giving the extreme versions of them. The ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, those who strike the fathers and mothers, murder, sexual and moral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Notice, what is the contrary to sound doctrine? What's contrary is sinful behavior. Understand, It's not just what we believe, it's how we act. What is God looking at when He wants to know what we believe? He's looking at what we act, what we are doing. And so here it is, contrary to sound doctrine is sin. And He lists out the Ten Commandments and and the extreme uh, violations of the Ten Commandments. He says, the problem is that we're using the law unlawfully. One time I had a hammer... And I cannot for the life of me remember why I used the back end of that hammer instead of the front end, you know, the big old heavy part, you know, use the back part, the crowbar section. All I know is I've got a broken hammer right there now. What was the problem? I didn't use it lawfully. How it was intended, how it was made. How was the word of God made? How was the law of God made? What was the point of the Ten Commandments? Paul gives elaboration on this. and It was... It was for the lawless and disobedience. It's not for the just. Why? Because the Bible says the just live by faith. We don't live by the law. We live by faith. The law was given for lawless and disobedience to explain and to give us what sin is so that we know we stand condemned before God. It gives us the expectations of the character of God in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Galatians 3, verse 23 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive of the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. I shared with you before when we talked about the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is not the ladder to get to God. And if we start doing that to try to get right with God, then we're messing up. It is by grace through faith that brings us to God, but it is the railway by which the Spirit of God leads us down so we know God's righteousness and live his righteousness. So let me bring you third truth about doctrine. When doctrine is right, 
God is glorified in the happy participation of the gospel. God is glorified. When doctrine is right, God is glorified in the happy, in the happy participation of the gospel. Notice what he says in, in verse 11. In accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which would I have been entrusted. The, the glorious gospel is, is literally the gospel of glory. It's not describing the kind of the gospel, but the content of the gospel is the, is the gospel of glory. The, here's the thing. What, what is the gospel? Is, is Jesus Christ. This blows my mind a little bit. The glory of God. That which declares the greatness of who He is. It, we could see it in earthquakes. We could see it in storms. We could see it in the stars and the vast expanse of the stars and the, uh, the microscopic details of life. We could see the glory of God in all these things. And in the Old Testament, we saw the glory of God in uh, what was called the Shekinah glory, the, the, the cloud-like presence of God that when, when God came down to meet with Moses, there was this, this cloud that covered up to, to mark His presence. And it was called the glory of God. And, and now this is telling me that the glory of God can be seen in a man. <laughs> the glory of God can be seen in a man. That the pinnacle of the revelation is Jesus Christ. And he says, here is the glory of God in Jesus. And so when we talk about the gospel, and, and the Bible talks about the Spirit of Christ being in us, Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in us, the hope of glory. <laughs> If God was to come down right now, it would not be necessarily in, in the cloud. It wouldn't be in the lightning. It wouldn't be in the bright light to show the presence of God. You know what it would be? It would be in Green Pines Baptist filled with the Spirit of God. Do you believe that? When we are having Christ in us being filled with His presence and walking out in love, Nightdale gets the glory of God through you. He's traded clouds for people. He's traded natural power for people to display the glory of God, the gospel of glory. And so what's needed? It is needed for you to know your sin. That's, that's the law. And for us to come to God and say, God, have mercy on me. And we experience the mercy of God to experience His love. And in knowing the love, it fills our heart and changes us so that we don't want to live to ourselves anymore, but live for Him. And so now we go out with a good conscience, with pure hearts, with faith, in accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God. Who's blessing God? The idea is not who's blessing God here. The blessed God, another way of saying it, is happy. Of the happy God. And we think, well, that just doesn't fit right. Because my happiness isn't like that. It comes and goes. This happiness is the solemn, calm, restful, perpetual gladness that fills the heart of God. And so there's this happy God giving a gospel of glory to us. And when we participate in that and say, God, I want that. I want Jesus in my life. I want forgiveness of sin. I want your love in my heart. I want to die to my selfishness and I want to love those around me. And we are happy in that. That brings glory to Him. That's doctrine done right. The gospel is central. Love is the action. 
and the glory of God is what is given. It's amazing how we can miss this. But it's really all throughout the Bible. Matthew 5, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So yeah, my selfish heart may die as I submit it, but there's another seed in me that's eternal and is going to grow. And it's okay to die when you believe that. Matthew 19, verse 19 to 20, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It's all throughout the Bible. How do we miss this? When we get caught up in our personal agendas. Sadly enough, Let's go to the church of Ephesus. John the Baptist, Paul, Timothy, John, all elders, different times. But toward the end, John writes a letter from Jesus to the angel, the messenger of the church in Ephesus. Write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampsticks. In other words, this is God. This is Jesus who walks among the churches. I know your works. Remember I told you, where does God go? Where does Jesus go to find out your statement of belief? He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are daring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. In other words, they got it right in, in making sure the gospel was central, and they were teaching these things and making sure there was these endless genealogies and speculations that were, were being separated. They, they got that right. They said, this is right belief, and we got this right. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So let me get this straight. If a church really doesn't love God's going to remove that church? Is that really what it's saying? If you go to Ephesus, you'll see no church. You'll see no city there, just the ruins. In that area, you don't see Christ and Christianity prevailing in any sort. I would say history and geology just confirms what God said would happen in Revelation? The answer simply is yes. If we don't love, it doesn't matter that you believe the Bible is the Word of God, and the church ceases to exist. It's just simple. Simple. Because if we're not loving, we're denying God. 
Let's pray.